Well, thank you, Brian, and uh, hello, everyone. It's good to be with you once again. I was here once before. Um, as Brian said, just by way of um, getting acquainted, my name is Bill Cheerios, like Cheerios, only with an S-H instead of a C-H. Um, I'm a retired free church pastor. I served uh, the free church as a senior pastor for 40 years, um, twice in Chicago and then once in Springfield, Illinois. Um, I have a family, uh, my wife Wenda, and we have two grown children and three um, three growing grandchildren. We always wanted to retire someplace warm, but our grandchildren live in southern Wisconsin, so they trumped the weather. And um, these do. Uh, these days, I um, do something called spiritual direction, uh, and really, that's a way to make space in people's lives. Uh, to help them discern the movement of the Holy Spirit. And so that's kind of what I enjoy doing most right now. Um, there was an old Jewish rabbi that said, God loves stories, so he created people. Um, you and I each have a story, and our stories um, in some way relate to God's big story and what God is doing in the entire world. And today we're looking at one of the most uh, famous stories in the Bible, uh, the, par uh, the parable of the prodigal son. Now, um, I want to just go back a little ways. I know that uh, Pastor Mitch has preached on the parable of the prodigal son, and I told him I'd like to take a little bit different tact around it. Uh, let's back up and say um, the word parable, Jesus often spoke using parables. And uh, the word parable actually comes from two Greek words. Now, um, I may have told you before I'm Greek, and now you can all say you know a little Greek. Um, but this word parable comes from two words. First is para, and that's the word for next to. So you've heard the word paralegal, means next to the lawyer, or parachurch, an organization that's next to the church. And then the second word, um, it comes from the word to throw, or to cast, in Greek. And so when Jesus told parables, what he was doing is he was sharing something that was familiar to us in order that we might learn about something that's unfamiliar to us. And so he often told a story that was very familiar, like this story about a family, a man with two sons. And Jesus is going to use this story to teach us about something that we know not a great deal about, and that is his kingdom. And that's really... Uh, the origin and the purpose of the word parable. Now, I said we call it the parable of the lost boy or the parable of the prodigal son. Some people call it the parable of the lost son or the lost boy. But there's other people in the story and there's also the older brother, which these had a spell check, <laughs> the elder brother or the um, uh, older son. And so some people will say, well, really, this is a story about the older son because it's all about his anger and his refusal and turning away from the father's grace. Some people say this is a story about both sons, it's a comparison and contrast, and they call it the parable of the two brothers. 
Um, other people say, well, wait a minute. We forgot about the third person in the story. And there's a third person in the story, and that is the father. Now, the story um, can uh, really defines him as somebody who's waiting, and he's waiting for his lost son to come home. So some people call it the parable of the waiting father. Some people call it the parable of the compassionate father, because when he sees the boy, he has compassion on him. But my favorite title for this parable is the parable of the prodigal God. Uh, Tim Keller used that word as uh, that title uh, in his commentary and his uh, work on the parable of the prodigal son. And usually we think of prodigal as something negative. And we only think of it as something negative because we associate it with this story, the prodigal son. But the word prodigal, if you look it up, really means excessive or lavish um, or extreme. And this parable really, I believe, is about the lavish and extreme grace and goodness of God. And so um, that's really kind of the big picture that I want to take a look at. And it's interesting, um, I've looked at this parable before, but this time as I was uh, reading it, I really felt drawn to the context. Uh, You know that any text without a context can be a pretext. So it's important to look at the context of the story. And if you turn to chapter 14, you'll see the context is all about banquets and luncheons and uh, gatherings and celebrations. It starts in chapter 14, one Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. In other words, the Pharisees were really having an eye on Jesus to make sure he didn't step out of line. And you may know at that point Jesus heals on the Sabbath and they become very critical of him. And then uh, a little bit later, it says, when Jesus noticed how the guests picked the best places of honor at the table, he told them another parable. And he basically said, when you go to a wedding, don't go up to the best place because somebody might come and say, you know what, you're in the wrong seat. Why don't you come and sit here? He says, rather take the lower seat and then you might get lifted up. And he uses that to say, those who humble themselves will be exalted, those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Uh, And then, uh, verse 12, when you give a luncheon or dinner, you see the concept here of kind of these great celebrations. When you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends and all the rich people. Invite the poor people, because the rich people will just invite you back. But when you do something for people who can't return the favor, you're really acting in the spirit of God. And then, um, verse 15, when those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat and feast in the kingdom of God. So again, you get this big party and this big celebration. And then Jesus talks about the great banquet, and he says, um, at the time of the banquet, um, the um, guy having the party sends his servant to those, to those who had been invited. And one person says, you know, I can't come today. Um, I'm getting married. Another said, um, I just bought a fleet of used cars. I've got to go check them out. And the last one um, doesn't come either. And says, so Jesus said, go and invite the lame and the crippled and people on the street. 
And so Jesus is really setting up this idea that in the great banquet of God, there's going to be some surprises. You know, we always like to, like the Pharisees, sort of figure out who's in and who's out. And Jesus is sort of blowing away some of those categories. And then chapter 14 ends this way. Um, It's kind of a really unusual way to end the chapter. Verse 25 says, Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. So Jesus is now really gaining popularity. And I know you guys are a church plant. And if large crowds started to come to your church, my guess is that the consultant would tell you, this is the time to really reel people in and tell them how great it is to be a Christian and how much you'll get to be a Christian and how you'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise and everything will go great. And Jesus does something totally opposite. He says, um, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And so Jesus says, we've got to put people um, aside as we follow him. And then he said, in the same way, anyone who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. You say, okay, now how many people is that going to attract? Not a lot, right? So Jesus almost seems to be thinning out the crowd. And then he ends this little story with a really interesting phrase. He says, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. And that word here becomes the connection to chapter 15. Look at verse 15, or chapter 15, verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around to hear Jesus. And in my Bible, I drew a little line between the here of chapter, the end of chapter 14 and the beginning of chapter 15. Because the people now that really are tuned in to Jesus are exactly the people that you would not expect. Um, the sinners and the tax collectors. The people that you wouldn't want your children to be hanging around with. And they're listening to Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so now Jesus tells this parable and there's two primary groups. There's the sinners and tax collectors and then there's sort of the religious elite and the religious establishment. And he doesn't just tell one parable, he tells three. The parable of the lost coin. Now, think about this for a minute. Coins get lost because somebody misplaces them. They don't get lost on purpose. This week my wife lost her glasses. It wasn't her glasses' fault. Um, She just happened to misplace them. And then he tells the story of um, the lost sheep. Now, sheep get lost not because they're rebellious, but because they're dumb. They just kind of wander. And then he tells the story of the lost boy. You know why boys get lost? Because they're rebellious. And they want to leave home. And they want to get out from under the uh, authority of their dad. And so uh, we're going to look at this parable. And I want to look at the parable from the standpoint of the three characters um, that are in the parable. And I'm going to go ahead and read um, the part about the lost boy, um, beginning with verse 11, as Brian did, but it can't hurt us to kind of get the scripture in our heads. 
Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calves and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. And he was lost, and he is found, and so they began to celebrate. Now imagine this. The son goes to the father and says, essentially, Dad, you know, I just can't wait till you die. Um, can, I, can you give me an advance and give me half of your estate? And remarkably, remarkably, I mean, if I was the dad at that point, I don't know that I would have been so gracious. Um, I would probably would have said something like, what, I can't die soon enough for you? And so remarkably, the father gives him the money, and the son immediately goes from the farm to the big city, and he just kind of goes wild. Uh, almost, you know, you can allow your imagination here to run away with you, and he uses all of his money up, and all those friends that were kind of hanging around him because he had a lot of money, all of a sudden a famine comes, and no more friends. And so he does something desperate. A Jewish boy, imagine this, a young Jewish boy going to feed pigs. Uh, pigs were um, unclean to a Jewish boy. And he's looking at the slop that the pigs are eating. And he says, you know, my father's slaves are eating better than this. And so he says, and I love this phrase in verse 17. Uh, in fact, Brian, the text that you used, um, my text says he came to his senses. Um, the King James and the one that you read says he came to himself. And that's really a profound thing because there is, I really believe that there is a part of us that God creates to relate to him, to love other people, and to live in the world in a way that reflects his kingdom. Or there's another self-referenced way that we try to build our own lives and we create these false selves, these little me's that really don't reflect the real person that God created us to be. 
And so when he's kind of eaten the slop and he realizes that he's been trying to live a self-referenced way of life apart from his father, because the geographic distance in the story really just represents the emotional and moral distance between them, he says, you know, maybe I can go back and maybe my father will take me not as a son but as a slave. And so he restarts rehearsing the speech. I'll set out, go back to my father, and I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. So imagine the long walk home that he takes, kind of rehearsing this speech in his mind. And the scripture says that the father sees the boy a long way off. What does that tell you? The father's probably been on his front porch um, waiting for the son to come home. And when he begins this speech, he says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, and this is really important because the very first thing the father says is, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger. In other words, I don't want this kid to sit in shame too long. As soon as he just turns his heart towards me, I'm going to come running to him. You know, when you hear a message and you've done something wrong, and that message is a message of shame. A message of shame will lead you away from God. Shame is the work of the enemy. Because shame says, not only did you do something wrong, but you are no good. You better get out of here. You don't deserve God's love or God's goodness. Guilt is from the Holy Spirit. Because guilt is designed to bring us back to God. And guilt... Um, is only there for a moment so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and restored to the Father. And it really reminds us that sin is not just the breaking of a law, but it's a violation of a relationship. And the Father here runs uh, to the Son in order to forgive him. So I really believe that Jesus told this message to give a message to lost boys and girls, to lost children, to say, no matter what you've done, no matter who you've done it with, no matter how angry you were with God, no matter how rebellious you were, you can come home. And if you're a lost boy or a lost girl, that's God's message to you. This is a homecoming message. But now a lot of us as Christians, if we've been a Christian any length of time, we might say, you know, that's a good story for those people who are unbelievers. I hope they listen. But I really believe that all of us, even those of us who have been believers for a long, long time, have a lost boy still inside of us. Sometimes um, it'll mean a backsliding and people will walk away from Christ. Sometimes people will just go there in their own mind. Boy, you know, if only I wasn't a Christian or if only I wasn't married to this person or if only I had that house. And um, a lot of times we are lost children, and we still need to come home. You know, one of my favorite verses in Scripture uh, comes after the rebellion of Jonah in the book of Jonah. It's uh, Jonah chapter 2, verse 1, that says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. God is patient. God is loving. God invites all of his lost children to come home. So that's the, the lost boy. And now let's look for a moment 
as the elder son. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard the music and dancing. And so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fatted calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So the older brother sees this party going on, and he starts really getting angry. And so he goes, looks through the window, presses his nose up the window, and he says, I'm not going in there. This is not fair. Look at what my younger brother did, and he's getting all the benefits. And here I am, sitting outside, and nothing, nobody's doing anything for me. The older brother became angry. He refused to go in. And so his father went out to plead with him. Now that really is interesting because the father went out and ran to meet the lost boy. And now he goes out and runs to the older brother. All these years I've been slaving for you, says the older brother, and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, he doesn't even say my brother, this son of yours, who has squandered your wealth and property with prostitutes. You know, there was never any mention of prostitutes in the initial story. So either he's been sort of trying to get stories on his brother or making them up, who knows. But he's pretty angry. And he comes home and you kill the calf. And then I love the father's response. Son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours, you notice the father says it's your brother, was dead and is alive again and he was lost and is found. Now the interesting thing about this story, you know we talk about the lost boy here, But the older son is just as lost as the younger son, only he's lost inside the father's house. (coughs) So you can be in the father's house and still be lost. Now, I want to share something, because I think a lot of us Christians have what I call EBS syndrome. And EBS syndrome is elder brother syndrome. <laughs> and um, a lot of us, I think, have that. You know, and one of the things that scares me when I look at this text, years ago, I could identify with this guy pretty easily. Now you know who I identify with more? I kind of identify with this guy sometimes. Why does that guy get all the accolades? Why does he get all the benefits? And so a lot of us have elder brother syndrome. And there's a couple of um, symptoms that are related to elder brother syndrome. And one of them is anger that covers hurt. You know, a lot of people talk about anger these days. And a lot of people say anger is a second emotion. It's not your first emotion, it's your second emotion. A lot of times we're hurt, we feel slighted. But it's hard to be vulnerable and to say, I'm hurt. You know, I'm disappointed that I never got that kind of party. So instead of doing that, he goes right to anger. And we do the same thing. And I don't know about you, but I get nervous with all the anger that I see in the church. 
Um, sometimes it's anger at you know church fights. Sometimes it's Christians joining the political fray between left and right. But I hear a lot of anger in the church. And I think sometimes it's because uh, of elder brother syndrome. Um, there's another symptom of elder brother syndrome, and that is a focus on performance rather than relationship. Now, the, remember that elder brother is, is in the father's house, but what does he say? All these years, I've been working for you. And he defines a relationship with the father not in a relationship of love and community and care and understanding. He develops a relationship of um, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life and it means work. And you better get going. And you better work hard. And if anybody sees you resting, that's going to be bad because they're going to think you're not working hard enough. And so we have this compulsion. Oftentimes ministers have it and oftentimes lay people have it, but it's a compulsion to do more and more and miss out on the connection, just the relational connection of um, being with the Father. Yesterday I saw this um, video and it was a little video of a... Um, uh, what, do you, what do you call those things in Australia that hop around? Kangaroo. Kangaroo, thank you. Uh, and it was a little baby kangaroo just kind of grabbing on to this guy's leg. I guess he was sort of the farmer there. and He just kept grabbing, 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 grabbing. Finally, um, you know, the guy was walking around and the kangaroo was just holding him and holding him. And then um, finally he put the kangaroo in a little pouch and he just held it and the kangaroo was really quiet and tender. And I just thought, you know, that's really a picture that we long for connection with God, just to be loved by God and cared by God. And that's really what the elder brother was missing. Um, so it's performance, uh, not relationship. It's also comparison. My wife and I were invite, invited to somebody's home yesterday, and it was just this beautiful home. And, you know, years ago, I think I would have tried to play the house contest and say, how come they won? Um, but at, this, at least at this point, it was like, you know, that's nice. I'm glad that they can have a good home. Um, but I'm happy with our home. But we often compare ourselves. How come he or she gets to do that? How come they get recognized and I don't? And so, again, we fall into this elder brother syndrome. Um, and there's a fourth one. Inability to celebrate. He refused to go in. I'm not going to that party. That party is just all about celebrating my brother who just, you know, kind of wrecked his life. I'm not going to that party. I remember for years in my own walk with Christ, there was an inability to celebrate. And I was just way too serious. And I think God was trying to give me two words at the time that I heard over and over again. And it took me a while to kind of figure it out. And that was, um, lighten up. <laughs> Have some fun. 
go enjoy life. I've created all things to enjoy. And when we get locked in elder brother syndrome, um, we lose this ability to, to celebrate. So, that's the two brothers. The younger brother and the older brother. Excuse me for putting my spit on your board. <laughs> so let's look now at the uh, waiting father, the compassionate father. Um, this is really an interesting thing that God reveals himself as father, isn't it? Because a lot of us have difficulty with father and the word father for all kinds of reasons. Uh, some fathers were just absent. Some fathers were emotionally unavailable. Some fathers um, were wounded. You know, it's interesting. Um, I think I misunderstood my dad for many years because it wasn't until I got older that I found out that he was never fathered. Um, when he was eight years old, his dad was taken to, during the um, Depression, my grandfather, who came from Greece, was a, um, a banker, and he had encouraged all of his uh, Greek friends to invest in the bank. And when the Depression come, uh, came, he just lost it. So my dad, as a kid of eight years old, saw his father being taken away to a psychiatric hospital, never, never came out. Uh, I didn't get that my dad was wounded. And it's interesting because, um, you know, there's really two things you can do with your anger. One is transmit it to other people. When your anger, just pour it on other people or allow God to transform it. And so a lot of us see Father, God as Father, in negative terms. In fact, there are some people that really just have difficulty with seeing God as Father. But it's important to remember that our fathers don't necessarily reflect who God is. Um, because a lot of people will see God the way they saw their earthly father. Um, I'm talking to one fellow right now and his dad, all his dad wanted him to do when he was a kid was work and never allowed him to play. And so it was easy for him to view God in that way. But the reality is that our fathers are intended to reflect the heart and the love of God. Uh, maybe you heard the story about um, three young men, or three elderly men, rather. They were retired, and they had retired down in Florida, and they were all bragging to each other. And the first one said, you know, my son um, bought me, he does well in business, and he bought me a new Cadillac. And so the second one says, uh, not to be outdone, he said, you know, my son does pretty well, and he comes every year from Oregon to visit me. And so the third one said, you know what, my son goes to a doctor once a week just to talk about me. <laughs> and one of the things I used to tell my kids is probably when they get to be 30, uh, they'll be in therapy. Um, but the, the good news here is that the father, or excuse me, um, yeah, the father really loves both children. And all of our life, whether we're a young boy or a lost boy, or an older son, really the thing that we're looking for is a compassionate father. Now, um, there's a fellow by the name of Henry Nouwen who wrote um, a well-known book on the parable of the prodigal son, and he calls it 
the return of the prodigal son, a meditation on brothers, sons, and fathers. And he says, and this is really sort of an interesting thing, he says the parable of the prodigal son is a sort of developmental picture of the Christian life. He says we begin the Christian life as lost boys, prodigals, who come home to God. We sort of go into this stage of elder brother, and we have to be healed from our elder brother syndrome. But he says the purpose of the Christian life is to become a compassionate father through whom others can come home to God. In other words, when we grow up um, as believers in Jesus, uh, we will not only look for all of the benefits from the Father, but we will then want to give those benefits um, to the people in our circle. And he talks about um, some of the characteristics of a compassionate Father. Um, And one is give up comparison. In other words, once we move towards being a compassionate father, we're not trying to to be better than other people. We're trying to um, make sure everybody does well. One of the joys of um, being living where we're living by our grandchildren is I get to take my 15-year-old grandson out golfing. And, you know, he beats me every time. <laughs> and there are some times that I have secretly wished, boy, I hope he messes up that shot. <laughs> but those are my elder brother moments. When I'm in my father moment, I said, I really hope that kid gets this shot and does the best that he can. Because as a father um, or mother, we really give up comparison and we want what's best for other people. Uh, another one is experience the pain of letting go. See, as Christians, what we like to do is manipulate other people and make sure they do well at behavior modification and that we want them to do well, especially if they're our own children. We want to manipulate them and make sure they're good Christians and make us look good. But a compassionate father sometimes realizes, or mother, sometimes realizes that going to the far country is part of a person's story. And our job is to love unconditionally the children that go into a far country. That's a hard thing. That's a really hard thing. If you've ever been a parent, you know that's a hard thing. But sometimes that is part of somebody else's story and we rob them of the story when we try to manipulate them before, before they're ready to come home. And so sometimes, as a father or mother, we have to experience the pain of letting go. Uh, the other characteristic is experience the pain of rejection. You see, the older son didn't understand his father's love for the younger son. He just didn't get it. And sometimes when you want to be a compassionate father or mother in somebody's life, they're not going to get it and they're going to get angry with you. 
And one of the things that's really tough in the church these days, I believe, is to be a leader. Because you know how criticized leaders are in our culture and how mistrusted leaders are? And a leader has to have a strong ego to be able to say, people aren't always going to understand, but I need to do what God is calling me to go do, even when people misunderstand me. And that's part of the heart of the Father. But maybe the best thing of being a compassionate um, mother or father is rejoicing at God's work in other people. There is nothing better than seeing people come home to God. There's nothing better than people saying, hearing people say, I'm going to forgive my brother after years of resentment. And you see, all of a sudden, the spiritual lights come on and there is rejoicing. In fact, I said, remember, that chapter 14 was all about banquets and rejoicing? Look at chapter 15, the parable of the lost sheep. Um, and when he finds the sheep, verse 5, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 that don't need to repent. That's joy. The lost coin. The woman says, Rejoice with me, I have found the lost coin. And Jesus says, in the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels over one sinner who repents. Um, verse 23, with the lost boy. Bring the fat calf and let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. So they began to celebrate. It is a time of joy when people come back to the Father whether they're lost children or older brothers. It's a beautiful thing. And there is great and deep joy and rejoicing. And if you've been a spiritual father or mother and you've seen that, you know the depth of that kind of joy. So I want to just conclude by asking you, who do you identify most with in the story? Um, prodigal son or daughter? Do you need to come home? and turn back to God? Or are you a Christian with a, a lost boy inside of you that sort of have the desire to run and run from the Father's arms and love and grace and goodness? Um, are you an elder brother? Do you sort of need to recognize the anger that you sort of walk around with and focus on performance and comparison and inability to celebrate and then still come home to the Father? Interesting in this story, Jesus never says whether or not the older brother came home. He just left it open. And so we have a choice to come home. Or you want to be a father or mother and allow um, to be the person who's willing to be misunderstood, allowing people to have their own stories, but then being there when they come home. Uh, this is one of my favorite stories in Scripture. It captures 
the heart of our God. It's a good story. Thanks for letting me be with you today. Father, thank you so much for the incredible love, grace, and mercy of Jesus. Forgive us, Father, when we make it confusing or we make it sound like it's just a bunch of rules rather than a relationship. Help us, Father, to be able to share in the wonderful joy of seeing others come home to God. We thank you, we love you, and we thank you, Father, for our stories. And we pray that our story may fit in perfectly with the story you're seeking to write in our lives and throughout the world. Amen.